Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 249 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Richard Kelly, the writer-director behind the films Donnie Darko, Southland Tales, and The Box. And we'll be speaking with him about his new 4K restoration of Donnie Darko, which hits theaters this month. And now, here's our interview with Richard Kelly. All right, so we're here with Richard Kelly. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're talking to you this week because Donnie Darko is coming back to theaters. So tell us about that. Well, we did a, uh, a restoration from the original negative at a 4K resolution, and we did a lot of... Uh, a lot of like very careful work restoring the image to its uh, original quality. And um, this was a film that was barely released on screens um, in the year 2001 in a very limited way. And a lot of people have never seen it on the big screen. And so uh, Aero Films, which is a great company out of, out of the United Kingdom, uh, came to me and uh, we had uh, the resources to uh, really bring this film back to, uh, to theaters in a way that no one's seen before. And are there any other differences between this and previous versions people might have seen, or is it just the image quality has improved a lot? Well, I would say the image quality overall is significantly improved, but we actually, I did a little bit more visual effects work um, on the director's cut version of the film uh, towards the end and some places where some things that weren't really finished properly in the, uh, the version that we we did in 2004. So there's a little bit more visual enhancement, particularly I'd say in the director's cut. And, um, but I think that the quality is something that no one has seen before because it was never, the film was never really transferred into the uh, digital space with the proper uh, care. I, I would say it was just it, 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 the color space and the grain and the contrast values, the skin tones, none of that was, was really uh, up to the the standards that Steven Poster, our cinematographer, and I that we had hoped. So, I, I do think it's a significant improvement and and worthy of uh, of seeing on the big screen. I, I hope for people. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds really really cool. I mean, I I want to mention that Donnie Darko. It's one of my favorite movies. I've seen it probably I would guess between ten and twenty times. And I didn't watch it for a couple of years though. I just watched it again a, a few nights ago. And one thing that really struck me on this rewatch is just how many of the characters are reading books or talking about books in the movie? And I was just wondering, would you say you have a particular interest in books and reading? Well, I would say I kind of joke sometimes that making films is like being in high school <laughs> or that Hollywood is like high school or that life is an extension of high school. And uh, college is an extension of, um, of, an advancement in, in your career. So it's almost like my education from, from specific English teachers and science teachers from my public education growing up in Virginia kind of informed my entire artistic point of view. And so I'm often going back and telling stories about teachers and having characters read books that were very formative and influential on, on my artistic voice. And, and it's almost just kind of like honoring these other texts that are out there. And 
it's an intertextuality, I guess, and, and it's a reference that's very clear and and, uh, and obvious at times, I would say. And but I kind of um, I don't want to feel like I, I want to obscure the influences. I want them to kind of I want to put them and build them into the narrative. So you're talking about like Graham Greene or Stephen King or um, Richard Adams who wrote Watership Down. You know, these are all books that you see characters reading within the story. And those are books that I, I grew up reading and my family grew up reading. And so it just feels like characters are digesting narratives within your own narrative. And so I, I, I like to be pretty transparent about that, I guess. It's interesting that you talk about the influence of your high school English teachers, because I maybe would have guessed from Donnie Zarco that you didn't like high school that much. Is that a fair statement? <laughs> well, you know, I think that's a, a, high school can be pretty miserable and it can be a, a difficult experience for for anyone, I would say. And, and some people have it a lot easier than others. I certainly had it probably pretty easy compared to a lot of other people. And, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really bullied or I wasn't, uh, um, subjected to abuse in, in the way that a lot of people who go through that experience. So I, I would say also that, that high school is, is a, is a time when a, a boy becomes a man and a girl becomes a woman. And we all go through these significant changes and we have to kind of confront the brutal reality of, of life. And, and uh, where do we go beyond high school? Do we escape our, our hometown? Do we stay there forever? Do we get married and have children? Do we pursue an ambitious career on the other side of the country? You know, there's major life decisions that are looming. Um, and I think that this is a story about uh, a character who is probably trying to confront a system of conformity and, um, a system that existed right in a very particular time, you know, that is 1988 in October of 1988 on the, on the eve of the presidential election. So it was just try, trying to um, create a character who had a lot of uh, internal conflict and, and who was confronting his community and, and trying to uh, make sense of the world, I guess. Well, right. And speaking of confronting the community, I mean, a bunch of the adults in this movie, like Kitty Farmer in particular, are these sanctimonious hypocrite kind of characters. Did that, were you drawing on personal experience for those sorts of characters? Well, I tried to have sympathy for all the characters in the film. And, and you know, even Kitty Farmer, who is, um, you know, to some degree, yes, sanctimonious and, and, um, and, and judgmental and, perhaps misguided, I, I wanted to, ha to still have sympathy for her and to think that she really does love the kids and she does care about them and she may be going ab about it in a misguided way where she may be idolizing this self-help uh, motivational speaker who is a false prophet or a, a, a charlatan. So I think that and even in the portrayal of the parents, um, Donnie's parents, even though they they are uh, on a different side of the political spectrum as their children, and, and you're you're dealing with these sort of Reagan era parents who are who are conservative, but I wanted them to be very likable, and and I I, I think that it's it's easy to try and um, paint the adults in these kinds of movies as being really out of touch or um, 
really um, almost cartoonishly um, uh, just doofus type <laughs> characters. So I was, I was trying to trying to have empathy for them, I guess, and, and you know, and so hopefully we were able to to give them three dimensions. And the actors certainly did a wonderful job, and you know, very lucky to get to work with all these actors. Yeah, uh, the actor in particular who plays uh, Donnie's dad is just hilarious, and he makes the character very likable, even though he's this sort of, you know, uh, conservative guy. Um, yeah, Holmes Osborne I've worked with on all three of my films, and um, it's interesting, he kind of shapeshifts through all three of my films in playing uh, various incarnations of a conservative archetype in different time frames in American history, and so in... And, and, in Donnie Darko, he plays this sort of 1988 suburban Reagan-era dad who is actually quite rebellious and, um, and uh, nonconformist, surprisingly, for that kind of character. And then in Southland Tales, he plays the uh, kind of puppet vice presidential candidate to the Republican ticket whose wife is um, the head of the National Security Agency. <laughs> and so he kind of shapeshifts into a different kind of uh, Republican archetype in, in Southland Tales. And then in the box, he plays Cameron Diaz's father, who is a detective who's sort of um, trying to un- follow the mystery of, of, of this mysterious box that his daughter and, and, and uh, son-in-law have received. And um, so it's interesting how Holmes appears in all three movies as, as a, as a kind of shape-shifting archetype from uh with kind of a connection to a conservative government uh, authority police uh, uh, background, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, Holmes is he, he's a he's a lovely uh, person and a, and a great friend. Glad to get to work with him. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about the box because I I just watched it for the first time the other night, and you know the um the it's based on a, a Richard Matheson short story called Button Button. And I had seen the Twilight Zone adaptation of that growing up, and it was one of my favorite um, Twilight Zone episodes. And for years, I've just always told that to people as just the uh, example of a story I think has just the perfect ending. Um, mm-hmm. But could you talk about sort of how you came to the Button Button story? Yes. Uh, like a lot of other people, when when that um, episode aired, and I believe 1985 with the revival of the Twilight Zone, uh, I saw it as a, as a kid and was just taken by it and, and kind of haunted by it. And many years later, I decided to approach Richard Matheson about optioning the story. And it turned out the origin story for Button Button was published in Playboy magazine in 1971. And um, he controlled the rights to the original story that he had adapted into a teleplay for broadcast. And so the original story was where the underlying rights existed. So I optioned the story from Mr. Matheson and it was probably a seven or eight page short story. It's not, it's not very substantial in terms of the narrative beyond the conceptual idea and the sort of twist of, of, uh, Mr. Stewart and then Norma and, uh, and, um, her husband uh, receiving this button unit and, and offer. And so it, it was, uh, it was a, a compelling conceit that I struggled for a long time uh, into it, 
how I would adapt it into a feature film. And so I, I was able to kind of expand upon it using my family and my, my parents' story and how they met and how they came to be married in, in their backstories of my father working at, at NASA and working uh, on the Mars Viking uh, project in, in the early 70s and up until 1976 when we landed on Mars and photographed it for the first time. So uh, it became a, a, a way of melding Matheson's short story with a lot of uh, autobiographical elements and then a bigger government conspiracy behind uh, what this experiment might mean and what would be the greater uh, metaphysical implications of the experiment and the sort of global or interstellar uh, hmm. ramifications of such a, an experiment. So it, it became something much bigger and more elaborate. Uh, really used Richard Matheson's story as sort of like the, the seed or the kernel of the whole thing. Right. So for people who haven't seen the movie, read the story and so on, the, the premise is that so this guy comes to your door with a box with this button in it. And if you push the button, a stranger dies and you get a million dollars. And I, I just always loved that premise. But I was really surprised when I went back and read the original story that the ending is actually completely different from the ending of the Twilight Zone episode. Um, you said that you you um, interacted with Richard Matheson. Did you ever talk to him about the different endings? Um, we never really met in person and I, I regret not getting to, to sit down with him and spend time with him. Um, it was uh, an, a situation I wasn't sure what his ultimate health status was at the, at the time when we were making the film, but it was a scenario where we had the short story and that was a, a very specific ending where um, Arthur, the husband, uh, I believe he gets pushed in front of a subway by a mysterious person. And the final line of dialogue from, from Mr. Stewart, who delivers the button unit, is, is something along the lines of, my dear, uh, did you ever really think that you knew your husband? Um, implying that uh, the person that they didn't know who would die was indeed going to be her husband. And the ending of the teleplay for the episode is different in the sense that they ask once they get the money and he gets to retrieve the button unit after the, the button has been pushed, he comes back to retrieve it. And they ask him a question of like, well, where do you go from here? Who, who are you going to visit next? And, and he says, well, I promise you it'll be someone you don't know, um, which is implying that the next time the button unit is pushed um something might happen to either arthur or norma and is sort of left as a cliffhanger so i think in my film uh i kind of tried to combine elements from i guess both both of the uh renderings of the story to a certain degree but obviously i added so there's so much more to the story that i had to build for a two-hour story well, yeah, and you, you really added a, a ton to this story. And one thing I, I really thought was interesting is that you make it about this, um, what was it called, the altruism coefficient or something, this this test of ethics and yes. how, 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 you, how we judge, you know, how, how, you know, how many people push the button is a, is a way of testing out, um, you know, how, how functional our society is. And 
I'm kind of, I was kind of curious. I thought it was interesting because the people in your movie are not desperately poor or anything. They live a pretty comfortable life, but they could obviously use the million dollars. But it made me kind of wonder, do you think that more people would push the button in the United States than elsewhere? You know, is there something about the United States that makes us think that we need or deserve a million dollars, no matter the... Uh, Cost. Well, it, there, there was, there was a, a, a lot of discussion going through our our group, inner group of people when we were making the film, and I had advisors and um, people from NASA and a lot of a lot of people involved in a lot of deep conversations about the ethics and the meaning behind the story, and we were very careful to try to inject as much logic into what could be a, a very murky, illogical um, puzzle, right? And, and, you know, what does it mean someone you don't know? And, you know, this was written in 1971 and the story to my, to my mind would only work in the seventies because if you have smartphones and the internet, everyone knows everyone now, there's no such thing as a stranger anymore because you can find everyone online. And so it, it was sort of a conceit that would only work in, in the seventies when people were still um, restricted by things like telephone books and landline, you know, rotary telephones and stuff. And, and so, um, but in terms of the, your, your question about the ethical implications and, and what it might mean for Americans versus other countries, I mean, that's a really interesting question. That I don't necessarily have the answer for, but I think the film is trying to explore that. You know, the the higher intelligence um, played by uh, Frank Langella, Mr. Stewart, who is sort of the um, interstellar employee who's come to Earth to conduct these tests. He he lands at uh, in Norfolk, Virginia, in uh, one of the most high secure military facilities, uh, you know, in the world. Right south of, of the, the nation's capital uh, and the most powerful country in the world. So there's a logic to why he arrives there and that he arrives there right after we have contacted or disrupted uh, Mars. And, and uh, so we were just thinking, uh, you know, they would start collecting highly intelligent, moral, upstanding people to conduct this test. and any scientist can look at that button unit in that box and see that there's no technology inside of it, that it's probably a hoax. It's probably, you know, maybe you have James Marsden's character is almost like goofing around with it, just like saying, push it, who cares? Like this is obviously some kind of um, scam or, or hoax, but strategically the Mr. Stewart has only presented himself to the wife while the husband is at work and his face is so otherworldly that she's convinced there's really something significant at stake. So we really tried to map it out where the husband almost convinces the, the wife to do it. And she almost just does it just out of a, a, a curiosity and just a, a moment. And they, they're, they're very decent people. They just, they just don't believe that it's real. And they almost think that it's like a, it's just a trick that they're supposed to follow through on, you know? So we didn't want to, we were very careful with it where we didn't want it to be a decision that was made with malice, you know, or a decision that was made with, with, um, a real belief that their, uh, 
actions were going to have real repercussions of someone, someone's death. But of course it all turns out to be something much more, much more, more significant than they intended. Um, no, but as, as to whether, uh, whether Americans would push the button more than people in other countries, I mean, that's a much bigger question um, about ethics and morality. And it also has to do with our, our connection to technology. And we obviously have things like drone strikes. Now we have devices that, um, can be implemented that separate the uh, the person from the act of violence or the instrument of violence, right? And we have uh, people who have to actually physically push a button in a you know military trailer outside of Las Vegas that will launch a missile and can potentially end hundreds of lives in, in a second. So it's it's we're getting into a situation where the uh, the idea of pushing a button that will result in the death of another person is a uh, pretty uh, pretty substantial uh, thing that we're going to have to deal with moving forward as a species, I guess. Well, right. And I probably I, I asked that question in part because I watched the box right after I watched Southland Tales, which yeah is is really about that a lot, and. I thought it was interesting because I, I saw you say that Southland Tales, it's this uh, sort of dystopian near future science fiction um, satire of American culture. And uh, you said that somebody asked you what has come true from that movie. And you said like more things than I can even count um, have come true from right. it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Southland Tales is a, is a, is a big sprawling uh, alternative alternative future fantasy of, of, of 1988 after uh, nuclear bombs have been detonated in Texas at the Texas border and in Abilene. Um, and so the, you know, that, that's a film that sort of deals with um, the hypothetical worst case scenario of, uh, of world war three and uh, domestic surveillance and uh, a political process that has been uh, turned into a really grotesque spectacle of, of extreme right versus extreme left. And, um, and uh, <laughs> we seem to have arrived at, at a place that's uh, startlingly familiar, I guess, with respect to that film. And it's troubling, but um, again, I, I make all these films to try to be cathartic and try to try to uh, inspire dialogue, I guess. Well, I mean, I think it's particularly interesting in light of recent events that a major plot point in Southland Tales is this group is trying to disseminate a fake news story, basically, in order to swing a presidential election, which obviously has right, a lot of right. resonance now. Right. Um, I think the fake story in Southland Tales is a police shooting of these neo-Marxist uh underground figures played by Amy Poehler and Wood Harris. They are these sort of slam poets, um, Venice beach underground, uh, revolutionaries. And it's played obviously comedically. Um, but they're intending to stage their own death to frame a, uh, a movie star played by Dwayne Johnson, who is, uh, married into the Republican family running for, the, on the presidential ticket. So it's this sort of idea of trying to stage a, a racially motivated 
political murder. But then uh, uh, it goes haywire when John Lovitz shows up and actually commits the murder for real when it was supposed to be staged with blanks. And so that was sort of built into the very elaborate plot of Southland Tales that there was this staged double murder gone horribly wrong that, you know, uh, results in um, a, a, a botched blackmail attempt, you know, to try and um, take down um, the Republican ticket with a, with a scandal, with a, with a police shooting scandal. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a lot of elaborate plotting and uh, it, it, part of the de- the density of the plot is also meant to be, I'd say homage to a lot of film noirs that have um, really, really dense plotting uh, that's kind of intentionally rendered that way. Yeah, I mean, I also wanted to mention, like, speaking of things that kind of came true, I mean, one of the really funny details in the movie is that all the U.S. battle tanks have Hustler uh, logos. Uh, they're, they're sort of sponsored by Hustler. And I don't right, know if you saw right. the, there was this story where a Pornhub is sponsoring snowplows. I don't know if you saw that, but there's all these snowplows driving around with Pornhub logos on them to help, uh, you know, because of budget cuts, um, towns don't have enough money to, pl- to pl- plow all the snow. So Pornhub is stepping in to help them. I, I was not aware of that. <laughs> that's, that's, um, wow. I had, I'd not heard that. That's interesting of all things that Pornhub would put their name on. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's a double on, you know, an intentional double entendre there. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I guess I'm curious though. I mean, I know that Southland Tales got kind of a mixed reception, um, when it came out, but, Given all, given how prescient it's turned out to be, have you seen it? Um, sort of people giving it a second look now. Yeah, I a lot of people have really started to embrace the film and discover it, and um, I am very grateful for that. I mean, obviously the the state of the world is very troubling, and um, I take no pleasure in seeing the world uh, become something like we rendered in Southland Tales, but at the same time, we, we made that film to try and express this sort of apocalyptic fantasy that could be cathartic for people to try to analyze like what, what is happening to the world and why is it happening and how can we use comedy and how can we use all these great comedic actors and people from Saturday Night Live and pop culture who are all talented in their own way to tell this really elaborate political fantasy. And so we, again, we made the film to try and deal with our apocalyptic anxiety. And this was in the year 2005 when we shot the film, we were literally shooting the film while Katrina was unfolding and, and the Iraq war was in full swing. And there was a lot of uh, anxiety of that particular era. You know, it was just before the iPhone was, released and it was at the sort of the the dawn of social media and Facebook and Twitter were on the horizon and uh, it was a very specific time. And so looking back now, um, I, I, again, I, I I still see Southland tells as being kind of an unfinished endeavor. We never really got to finish it properly. And it was just, it was, we had bitten off more than we could chew. It was too big. It was too ambitious and it was too sprawling and there were graphic novels and, website and all this stuff. So it was just, uh, 
it was a lot. And I think now we're in a, we're in a different world and there's new ways of telling stories and, and, and new uh, delivery mechanisms. So my hope is that we can kind of come back around to Southland Tales and do a final finished longer version of it at some point. That's my hope. Well, I mean, one thing I've talked about with a couple of guests now is, is it become really hard to do political satire because the current events are so sort of self-satirizing? I mean, I feel like if you would put, if you would come up with the idea back in 2005 or whatever to make Donald Trump president of the United States, I'm guessing you would have rejected it for being too silly or too on the nose, right? Yeah, I think I think having him be a part of South, he would have been too cartoonist for South Tales in a way. Um, I think that the political candidates in South Tales played by Holmes Osborne and, and his wife, Miranda Richardson is playing Nana Mae Frost, who is sort of the, the real power behind him. And she's running the NSA. It's almost like they're sort of engineering um, a presidential ticket by virtue of, domestic surveillance and sort of bringing it out into the public. And um, this entity called U.S. Ident is what we call it in the film. So I think that, yes, yeah, some, someone like Donald Trump probably would have been too cartoonish for the movie, which is strange to say, but it, it was not even in our imagination at the time that something like this could have come to fruition. And I know the Simpsons pre- uh, predicted it in an episode, probably like 2003, I think, or something where they, it was like a future episode where Donald Trump is president. But again, the Simpsons is, is an animated show that can, it can go as broad and cartoonish and absurd as, as they see fit. But, um, but yeah, it, you know, as to today's uh, level of, of satire, it, it's, it's, hard to top what's happening in the real world in terms of just the ridiculousness and the vulgarity and the, uh, and the shamelessness of, of this uh, political nightmare that we wake up with every day. So I don't know. I don't know what that's going to do to the state of comedy and satire. And I know that even um, the South Park guys have sort of decided that they're going to stop dealing dealing with Trump or, or rendering Trump stories because they just don't feel like uh, it's they want to do it anymore. I don't know. It's 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 going to be interesting. But I think we're all activated. I think that a lot of people are politically activated and I think we're going to hopefully see a lot more films that are uh very very aggressive in speaking to these political times and uh you know, I think I saw what Robert Redford said at the uh, beginning of this year's Sunday's Film Festival. He had a really thoughtful quote about how, you know, the political pendulum swings back and forth. And um, and when it swings in the uh, direction of the extreme right or the alt-right, as it has in this in this recent election, I think you're going to see a lot of artists becoming really activated and um, and hopefully the people who are paying for the movies and for the television are going to, to be supportive of that uh, political activation and resist in a resistance movement, really. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. So I do want to get back to Donnie Darko too, because I mentioned this is one of my favorite movies 
Um, but the first time I watched it, I remember I was with some friends at a writing workshop and we all watched it. And then at the end, I said, uh, wow, that movie was great. I'm not really sure what happened, but it was great. And that must be a reaction. You get a lot to the movie, right? I think it's a little overwhelming for for people who watch it the first time. And, and that's OK. I, that's the kind of experience I want to deliver for people is a really complicated story a lot of a lot of layers and a lot of um hidden clues spread throughout but i wanted to kind of wash over the viewer and leave them a little dizzy that that's the uh that's my motive as an artist is to kind of put you on a roller coaster and and have you kind of walk out of the theater a little disoriented (laughs) and um the idea is that these movies are meant to stand the test of time and they're meant to, to, to warrant multiple viewings. You should be able to come back to it over and over again and see new things. And so that's my intention is that it needs to hold up over time and it needs to, uh, to be worthy of, of a, a second and possibly a third viewing. And, um, you know, that's a risk you take because not everyone is, is, uh, appreciative of that kind of film you know a lot of people go to the theater and they want everything spelled out and they want to walk out knowing exactly what happened and then they want to go to dinner or they want to go have a drink or you know move on with their life and um my movies aren't those kinds of movies they're always going to leave you um with a lot of questions and so it's just it's uh it's i guess just an intentional decision I've made and the kind of stories I want to tell, I guess. Well, but I mean, there was a director's cut, right? I mean, did you feel was, was the theatrical cut sort of how you intended it at the time or did you have to cut stuff out for, you know, because of money or things like that? Well, I think both I'm, I'm happy with both cuts and we've restored both cuts. And I think that it's probably better for people to watch the theatrical cut first. And if they want more, they want to dig deeper and they want to see more of what was inside the time travel book or more of the relationship with Donnie and his father and more of what Drew Barrymore and her sort of curriculum was all about. And just more of the the layers, they can, they can go and watch the director's cut and, and have that alternative experience. So it was, it was meant to be that the, the two versions of the film could coexist and that we we would restore both of them and have them available for people. And, you know, I even probably say that I'm probably not even satisfied with either cut of the movie, that there's always more, there's always more that I want to do. And my imagination often, um, it, it's bigger than the means of uh, production that I have access to. <laughs> I always want to, I always want to do, stuff that I can't afford or that's outside of the budget or that's just going to make the narrative uh, too long for a, a two hour theatrical release window, you know? So that's just part of my, uh, you know, unwieldy ambition, I guess, or maybe my immaturity, <laughs> but I I've been, you know, working to try and refine my, my upcoming films to make sure that they are going to be, digestible in a two hour time frame, and that I'm not going to have like 45 minutes of deleted scenes <laughs> like we did on the, like on the box, there's like 40 minutes, 40 to 45 minutes of deleted scenes. 
in that film. Um, and it was extremely difficult to, to edit it down to uh, one hours and 55, one hour and 55 minutes, I believe is the contractual running time on that film. So it was just, it, it's, it's part of, um, you know, me just learning how to refine my process as a filmmaker, I guess. Well, right. I mean, speaking of that ambition, another part that really struck me rewatching Donnie Darko is there's this uh, musical sequence when that sort of introduces you to all the characters in the high school when Donnie first comes to school. And I think you were mm -hmm. you were 26 at the time you made this movie. It was your first feature film, right? And it just strikes me as just an incredibly ambitious, audacious sort of thing to put in your your first feature. Yeah, I mean, I was 25 when we were on set and I was actually calling action on set. And that sequence in the high school was shot at Loyola high school in um, near downtown Los Angeles. And it was almost a full day of shooting in our first week. And it was all really just kind of like a music video, very carefully choreographed to a tears for fears song called head over heels. And when you're in your first week of principal photography as a first time director at the age of 25, you've got a lot of people looking over your shoulder, wondering whether you've got the, the goods, <laughs> whether you even deserve to be in this position. And, and you've got a lot of people who are lifting equipment and busting their ass to try to make, help you make your day and get all of your shots in time. And uh, they're looking at you doing this ambitious, potentially self-indulgent sequence, kind of thinking, is this really necessary? Is this really going to make it into the final cut? And so there was a lot of skepticism about pulling that sequence off. And um, I was very stubborn and very adamant that we do it. And again, we didn't even have the permission from Tears for Fears to use the song. So a lot of people were not happy with me for demanding to shoot that sequence. And I had a wonderful cinematographer named Stephen Poster who was helping me pull it off. And so we shot the whole sequence with all these steady cam shots. And then the footage came back from the lab and the editors started to cut it together. And I'm like, please guys cut it together as quickly as possible. I need to show it to people, put the song in there and let's do the speed ramps and let's just get a cut of that sequence. And so the editors came back and it was Friday of our first day of principal photography. And I had a VHS tape. This is at the time when people were still looking at VHS tapes and I put it in a VCR in one of the monitors in the trailer. And I invited about eight people from the crew to look at the, the Tears for Fears Steadicam sequence with the song and they all looked at it and everyone kind of looked at me like, okay, we get it. That's really, really cool that, that we get it now. Okay, Richard, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to, we're going to, you know, let you indulge on some of this stuff now. And, um, okay. So it was like a, it was a morale boost, you know? So I always find that if you can start showing your crew footage as soon as possible, and particularly if the stuff that's working, you know, and <laughs> if it, if there's a musical sequence or something that people are not sure about, or, you know, start, start showing the, the, the dailies cause it just builds morale. And then if you're taking more risks, it's going to incentivize the crew to help you continue to take those risks, you know? And so, um, and, it, and it's, it's also a risk too, because if you can't get the song, then you've wasted a bunch of time and money. And if you can't put another song to it, then, you know, that's, that's trouble. So we were also able to send the sequence to the band. So we sent it to Tears for Fears. And um, I think they were really, 
really you know knocked out by it and they wanted to help us secure uh, their song so um these are the risks that that one can take if one wishes but uh do it with with great strategy i would only recommend <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's it's just like i said it's such a great sequence um okay so i was just reading uh this guardian article and they described donnie darko as quote a touchstone work for the generation that grew up with it and i was just kind of curious when did you first get an inkling that this movie was becoming a cultural touchstone for that generation well i think the real moment where i realized it was going to real really connect with people was March or April of 2002 when the film had just been out on DVD for the first time. And we had a pretty minor uh, theatrical release the previous October, kind of right after 9-11 and very low per screen average. And it only lasted in theaters for a few weeks, made about $500,000, which was a fairly okay amount for, for how, um, little marketing the film had and it was a very nominal theatrical release so it was we thought that the movie was just it had basically disappeared and would never really ever reach a wide audience but so come march or april of 2002 i was walking down the sidewalk in the east village and i passed by a place called the pioneer two boots pizza parlor and there was a donnie darko poster hanging in the in the window and I'm like, what is happening here? Why is this? Why is my poster hanging here? And I went inside and I talked to the manager. I'm like, that's my movie. What, what's, why do you have the poster <laughs> hanging up? He's like, I think we have a little movie theater connected to our pizza joint here, and we're playing your movie every Saturday night at midnight, and it's selling out. And I'm like, really? <laughs> He's like, yeah, come by. And so we showed up at like 2 a.m. when the movie was finishing that Saturday night, and. Um, I didn't expect more than a few people to be there and it was indeed sold out and there was people with cameras and I think Michael Musto from the village voice was there. And I ended up doing like an impromptu Q and a at like two in the morning. And I was just like in shock. I'd never expected this new wave of enthusiasm to emerge. And uh, so I knew right there that, that the movie wasn't done and it had, it had a, a longer life. And then, then London came to the rescue and the following Halloween, we had this incredibly successful um, re art house release in the UK that turned the movie into a hit all of a sudden internationally. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, that's really, really cool. I mean, I'm just curious, do you have like big fan reactions to the movie? Like, uh, like Frank tattoos or like Donnie Darko themed weddings or like people who, made big life changes after seeing the movie or anything like that? I, I've seen pretty much everything that you just mentioned. <laughs> and um, it just continues to amaze me that uh, people have this emotional response to it and that they want to create artwork based on it or tattoos or paintings or sculptures, you, know, you name it, I've seen it all. And uh, you know, there's merchandise associated with the film now and, um, it's it's taken on a, a life of its own and and if anything i just i appreciate that and i i'm happy to continue talking to people about it and doing this rest, restoration was important to get back on the big screen and i uh am always just wanting to push this film as far into the mainstream as i feel that i can because 
the more mainstream my work can be perceived, it'll just help me do bigger and more original political films. And that's what I want to do. You know, I want to continue doing my own original ideas and, and they're not always very cheap. They're quite expensive and complicated and uh, immersive in their worlds. So, um, the, the more Donnie Darko can be seen as a mainstream hit, the better. Uh, and, uh, it, it's come a long way from being a failure to being a cult film to now, I believe being something that, uh, everyone has heard about. And, um, that's a wonderful thing. And, and, um, and again, I, I see this as a means to, to push forward and try and tell more original political stories really, uh, is my intention. Yeah. I mean, do people approach you with their interpretations of the movie where you're just like, wow, that's weird. I never would have thought of that one. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I, I try to kind of just distance myself from, from all the different theories in the sense of people are allowed to think whatever they want, I guess. And if, um, if they have an interpretation of the story that I disagree with or that I think is wrong, it's not really my place to get in there and, and argue with anyone. And, you know, I've, I've presented the film for what it is and I've done a director's cut of it. That's a, a bit longer and more detailed. So, you know, it, it's, it's, I'm just grateful that people are talking about my work and that they are passionate about it. And, um, you know, it, you can only engage so much with like fan theories, um, before I think you end up going down, uh, going down in a, a spiral of uh, self-analysis that's probably not healthy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've heard you say that you might do a Donnie Darko sequel. Is there anything uh, more to say about that? Well, I think that's a, a discussion for for down the road. I, I don't know what if something would ever materialize or happen. Um, I don't, ultimately, don't con I don't control the rights to Donnie Darko. I had to relinquish the underlying rights when I was 24, when I set the project up. So I want to protect the intellectual property and, and make sure that if anything is ever done with it, that it's done for a proper reason, that there's a new story to tell and it would probably be a much bigger endeavor and something much, much more ambitious than what the original film is. I just, more than anything, I just, I would hate to see, it like rebooted or, or remade or done um, something done with it for cynical reasons. And so uh, we'll see what happens. I, I, there's always an open door to going back to this universe and doing something much bigger. And I'll always keep that door open, but at the same time, I just want to protect the film from, uh, from who knows what <laughs> but that could happen. You know? Well, I saw Jake Gyllenhaal said he'd be up to reprise the role of Donnie Darko. I would listen. I I would love to work with Jake again. Uh, I mean, Jake is uh, is just an enormous talent, and um, so we'll see. I I, I don't know what's going to happen, um, but there's all sorts of uh, possibilities out there. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was this S. Darko movie that you were not involved with, right? Like, do you is there something you do you have a a position about that movie or? I've, I've never seen it. You know, that was a situation. I, I don't control the rights and um, they approached me about being involved with that. And I just was not interested at all. And I, I didn't, um, 
I didn't want to have anything to do with it because I didn't feel like it was um, in any way necessary or, or, or at the, at the point in time, I didn't feel like it, it should be. I, I was against it being made at all, but it was basically presented to me as like, well, if you're not going to be involved, it's going to happen regardless. There's nothing you can do to stop it from being made. And so I, there was really nothing I could do. Um, and so I've never seen it and I don't really see it as being anything uh, uh, that I authorize or endorse in any way. So yeah, it was, that was not, not fun. It was not, and I, and I, the thing that's bothered me a lot is over the years, people just assume that I allowed it to happen or I profited from it or that I sold off the rights to someone else or something. And that wasn't the case at all. It's just, I, I never, when you direct your first movie at that young of an age, you never get to control the underlying rights to anything <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're, we're almost out of time here. So I want to ask you again about this, um, this th theatrical re-release. Is there anything people should uh, know about how to catch it or, you know, where to find it, stuff like that? Um, it is going to be playing all over the country and I don't have the theater list on me, but it's going to be in a lot of markets all across the United States. It will start playing March 31st, this Friday. And I think you can go on the uh, Arrow Films website to probably find the exact theater bookings. But uh, you can list of screenings at cartilagefilms.com. Okay, yeah, cartilagefilms.com should be there where it is. But it, it's uh, all over the country. And I think every major market should at least carry it in, in, in one theater, if not a couple theaters and um, sometimes I think it, it'll just be one-off screenings, but other theaters will be probably playing it for at least a week, I would think. Yeah. So that was the, that was the, our publicist, Justin here. If you, if anyone's wondering who that voice was <laughs> uh, there. Um, okay. Oh, and I did, I did also just want to ask you if you have anything else in the works you want to let people know about. Uh, it looks like you worked on a bunch of stuff. Um, yeah, I have, the, there's a, there's a bunch of, stuff in the works, but I, um, I can't confirm any of it until I, I know that, uh, everything is in place. I don't, I don't want to, um, disrupt any of the delicate, um, process of, of getting a, a film greenlit. So we're, we're really close on a bunch of things, but, um, once, once like the ink is dry or the deal is completely uh, official or the green light is no longer blinking between yellow and green. Um, <laughs> uh, I can then uh, confirm it, but uh, at this point, I, I can't really, I can't talk anymore about it. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, I mean, I saw one of, of them. I, <laughs> I saw one of them maybe involves the futuristic Manhattan. So I don't know if that's still in the works or not. But that sounds cool to me. So I'll put in a you know a word of uh, support for that one. Well, there's there's uh, a lot. Uh, where I'm trying to look forward into the future and then some other things where I'm looking back into the, into the past and um, some are a combination of both. So it, it's uh, I, I do like to tell stories that are etched in the timeline very specifically and very specific dates and times. Uh, but, and I will say that all the films are connected that all the, all the films I've made are connected back to, to Donnie Darko, I would say in ways that are deeper than more, more, significant than people really realize but uh stay tuned for more and i've been working really hard and uh writing a lot of writing i've written so much i think my 
eyeballs are about to fall out of my head. (laughs) (laughs) Or my fingers, my fingers are getting numb. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds really good. And we're definitely looking forward to seeing uh, what you come up with next. And so we've been speaking with Richard Kelly and his classic film, Donnie Darko is back in theaters this month. So Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Richard Kelly for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Lamont Skiddly Boom Boom, who writes, Great interviews on sci-fi literature, TV, film, and other platforms make this an essential podcast. It will introduce you to new sci-fi delights. So good I want to pour chocolate sauce on it and eat it. So big thanks again to Lamont Skiddly Boom Boom for that great review. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.